honestly, I kind of want to start out this episode though with highlighting um shit, I totally forgot what I was gonna say. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely want to start out this episode by highlighting like Wemby versus Chet because I think Wemby has a lot more hype built around him. People are saying he's the next LeBron James. People are saying he's even hyped up more than LeBron was back in the day, which is really hard to believe because LeBron was like the only player that actually lived up to the hype and maybe even surpassed it. He like has arguably the GOAT status, which is very, very hard. There's only like one or two GOATs in every sport, right? So he's Mm -hmm. arguably the best player of all time. He lived up to all the hype and then some. But then when Benyama had a good kind of like first couple of games, but lately he's been touching back down to earth. Whereas Chet Holmgren, for example, he's a second year player, but he's still a rookie because he sat out with his uh, foot injury for the first season. But he just has such better shot selection. It's not even funny. His stats speak for themselves. He's literally shooting 50% from three and 50% from the field. And he's averaging like four less points, the same amount of assists, which is around three, and the same amount of rebounds, which is around eight, which is, it's a bit hard for a seven-footer not to grab all the double-digit rebounds. But I think that Chet might be the front runner at this point in the season for Rookie of the Year because of his shot selection and because of his team's success. The Spurs are the youngest team in the entire league, so they're going to make a lot of mistakes. I'm not saying OKC is old because they're the second youngest team in the league, but I think the fact that Chad had an entire offseason to practice with NBA players, he had a full training camp to walk into another one, right? And then combined with the fact that he's playing with a first-team All-NBA player in Shai Yulgis, Alexander, and then they just rounded out that team so well. Like They have a 6'8 point guard that can handle the ball. They have... Uh, Jalen Williams, the number eight, num- not number six, who's also another like all-star caliber player. So they have a very like oiled machine roster and they're coached super well. And I think Chet Holmgren's more mature. He has better shot selection. Whereas Wembenyama is a seven, five player, seven, four, seven, six, whatever you want to call him. He's shooting under 50% from the field and he's like on the edge on the thirties. I think he's almost under 30% from three now because his shot selection isn't just the smartest, you know, like his last game, he, I think he shot like eight for 22 from the field. He took by far the most amount of shots on the team, but he made the least, you know? So I think that people are kind of getting ahead of themselves when they're talking about this rivalry that's brewing up. I agree that it's going to be one of the best rivalries in the NBA to come, especially in the future. However, for now, I think people are kind of getting ahead of themselves when they when they're on the Wemby hype train and they're forgetting about their fellow American seven footer, Chet Holmgren, which is better, if not on the same wavelength, at least as uh, Wemby. What do you think? I tend to agree. I mean, when uh, Holmgren was at Gonzaga, he was, you know, he was just a tower. He was sort of the guy. He was the guy, you know, Gonzaga. Although they always fall short in the uh, March Madness, you know, they're a perennial contender. Mm -hmm. And uh, Chet's been, you know, until 2021 was, you know, the guy. He was the oil behind that machine. Um, You know, I I think the other thing with Wemby, too, is he's tall, but he doesn't have a lot of, like, muscle on him. Yeah. You know, so his ability to, like, 
you know, drive to the hoop and, you know, he's tall. So like if he gets in the paint, he definitely can finish, but you know, he's not able to like power through guys um, the way Chet is. And like Chet but just has more because Chet is less heavy than him. He weighs, he's lighter. Chet's listed at 195. Wambi's listed at about 215. But I remember reading a Twitter post saying that he weighed in on the first day of the season at 230 because he was working out. So he's arguably 30, 40 pounds heavier with alongside being like three, four inches taller than Chet. And you 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 saw that you spoke into existence yourself. You said that Chet has more control. He has better footwork when it comes to the ball. He has better IQ and decision making when he has the ball, whether to shoot it, whether to pass it. He always wants to get the best shot. Whereas Wemby is still treating it like he's in Mets 92 and he's the guy and he's like the only good player there. I don't think he's fathomed the fact that he's surrounded by NBA players rather than like French G League players. I think he has that killer mentality where he wants to be that guy. That's why he had 38 against his idol in KD. But I think that he's just getting a, a bit ahead of himself because he's controlling the narrative negatively rather than feeding into it and actually getting the shots up in rhythm he's just kind of forcing stuff up at times obviously that's not all the time i lagging again no i'm good okay but i think that's well that bit's okay uh but that's kind of the other thing with uh sort of the team Wemby's on versus the team chet's on which is like you're correct like chet has much better shot selection but that's also in part because you know he has a team a system around him um you know where he can make plays for others or, you know, others can make plays for him. Whereas the Spurs, as you mentioned, are a very young team. Mm -hmm. Um, They unfortunately rank in the bottom five in both offense and defense and have the worst net rating. Um, And obviously pop is an ex probably the best coach in the league. I would say, you know, arguably, but you know, the problem is when you're on such a young team, you know, with a lot of inexperience and kind of all the guys around you have poor, shot selection and not great at sort of making plays and you know creating plays for others um you know you definitely fall more towards the mean of like what you're surrounded by Mm -hmm. so i do think that gives chet the advantage um however all the facts you stated are, are true too like he his footwork is better he's taking better shots especially from behind the arc um and you know, right now OKC is looking really, really good. It looks like yeah. they've uh you know, they were pretty good last year, especially towards the end of the season. But you know, they're they're really I think they very much welcome Chet being back on the court and finally sure. getting to show what he can do in the NBA. Yeah, we're only so, games. I, I think for season, now. But what you said is right. Like they're fifth in the West. Yeah. You know, they're making a very solid run just like Houston, which would be kind of a good segue to talk about them because them mm-hmm. um, alongside Miami are on the current NBA's longest winning streaks at six and five, respectively. And honestly, I'm super happy for Houston because they have my favorite X-Raptor. Well, after Kyle Lowry, obviously, and Fred Van Vliet. <laughs> and... Honestly, I don't think he was deserving of the contract that he got because he's an undersized he's an undersized point guard and he's just like not worth 40 million dollars a season. I'd probably put him around like 28 to 30 mil easily, like easily. 
but I think they overpaid him because he's an established point guard, which is really hard to come about in the NBA, especially to play for a rebuilding team. I think a lot of established PGs want to win and keep themselves into contention. But Fred Van Vliet came from such um, like a rough background in terms of nobody believing in him. He was always the only person who stood up for himself and he believed that he could um, like stay in the same league as other players in the NBA. That's why he bet on himself, which is his famous catchphrase and slogan. And then he ended up being one of the key pieces for the Raptors championship in 2019. And then he became a starter and then he became an all-star. And now he's a max contract player, which is a super motivational story in and outside of basketball. But that's besides the point. What I'm trying to say is he is literally leading a very young, inexperienced Houston squad to a six-game win streak. They started out 0-3, and they haven't looked back since. They're in fourth place in the in the Western Conference right now. And Houston is one alongside three teams that are so comfortable and so like reminiscing about the fact that they are so content and happy that they didn't trade for James Harden because as we will get into later they are one of the teams that's not punching the air right now whereas the Clippers are that team punching the air right now and I don't want to get too ahead of myself by saying that their owner literally stepped in and vetoed their GM to make the trade happen as we're going to get into later that tells you how some owners should literally just not get involved like Mark Cuban, for example, but at least he got Dallas a chip all the way in 2011. But that's all to say that, do you think Houston is one of those legit teams that actually got blessed and not trading for James Harden and re-giving him the keys to the franchise like they thought they wanted to? And uh, Philly's also like super happy, obviously. They got really good pieces in return. And now the Clippers are punching the air. Do you think that's... uh? pattern and a trend that's going to keep continuing or do you think it's just the first uh, couple of game jitters and all those teams are going to come back to earth in which Houston's going to go back down to being a bottom five team Philly's not going to stay in first place and the Clippers are going to slowly but surely rise up the ranks um I think for Houston I think they have a chance to at least be a play-in team I mean by every statistical measure, especially on defense, the Rockets have been much better this year. Um, they are they have fewer turnovers. They their their opponent three point shooting percentage is currently about thirty two percent and twenty five percent from the corners. Um, they currently have the you know That's top cool. five ranked defense, which isn't surprising when you consider that their head coach is Ime Udoka. And I mean, as a Celtics fan, I'm very familiar with, you know, what he can do in building up defenses, you know, really gets the guys motivated, playing hard. And, you know, you have a very young team, but also, you know, some experienced vets like, you know, Dylan Brooks is, you know, as much as we like to clown on him is a very good defender. You know, Fred Van Vliet can be that guy. I mean, you talked about his story. Um, and I'm sure he's trying to live up to that contract, that 33 oh, mil a year. Um, and you know, the Rockets also have a top 10 offense right now. So, you know, is it possible they crash back down to earth a little bit? Sure. But they beat good teams on this six game win streak. It's not like they were just beating the, 
you know, the Spurs, Hornets, and Wizards. No, they were beat the Kings pretty handedly twice, blew out the Lakers, and most recently they beat the Nuggets in a wire to wire game. And, you know, we all think the Nuggets are, you know, in a pretty good spot to repeat. So I think I think Houston's going to give teams problems. Just a little uh, side note on them beating Denver. Uh, the reigning finals MVP in Nikola Jokic had 36, 21, and 11 on 50% shooting, and he still lost to the Houston Rockets. So that's to emphasize your point on them beating good teams. Yeah, exactly. It's not like you know Jokic put up another 30-point triple-double and the Rockets still it's casually, got it done. right? This is so um, casual for him at this point. Ridiculous. Yeah. So, so I think I think the Rockets again, maybe not solidified as a playoff team, but if they all stay healthy and you know keep working together, and Ime Udoka can really motivate that squad, keep them together, I think they could make a serious run. Um, as for the Clippers, um, well, I think it was you I joked to, or maybe a friend of mine. I called them the uh, Los Angeles Thunder, or the yeah. Oklahoma City Clippers, because uh, you have Paul George and Westbrook and Harden all back together. Um, I think the problem is just fundamentally Harden's, he's not a good influence in the locker room. He's too and slow. I'm sure you occasionally get, he's slow. I mean, the last two seasons, he's shown up extremely out of shape and like noticeably so. Um you know, and, and even during the playoffs last year against my Celtics, you know, he had two good games, uh, both of which were narrow Philly victories, but the rest of the games, he was a complete no-show. Nine points in game seven. In which, you know, the, the Sixers got blown out of the Eastern Conference semifinals. You know, I, I think the, the Clippers especially have more of a defensive identity too. Like, you know, they have plenty of guys who can put up a lot of points they have Kawhi, they have paul george and they have pretty decent depth but like yeah yeah harden's the kind of guy who can wreck a locker room and you know my hot take is a year maybe two years from now he will be in get ready to learn chinese buddy mode yeah no that's not a hot take at this point connor i think that that's very very um applicable to the current situation because a lot of people are coming out to get him, like uh, even uh, seasoned NBA analysts are going as far to say as he should be the one coming off the bench, not Westbrook, because the Clippers were doing super well. They were in a groove. They were all learning to play well together. And their strengths highlighted the other people on the courts' weaknesses and Westbrook and PG and Kawhi specifically. Um like uh players like Kawhi and PG need somebody to run faster um take up the pace a notch and give them open shots and rebound misses and that's exactly the role that Westbrook found found himself settling into which kind of reminds me a little bit back of his UCLA days when he was more regarded as a good defender and someone to increase the pace of the game get you more opportunities to score He's kind of settled back into his original role in that. And he found a really good spot and a really good role with the Clippers. And then we have the Clippers owner going out, which is by far the richest owner. Like, I think I read that his net worth was about $80 billion. And the next best rich owner was about eight. 
So he's at least like $80 billion richer than the second uh, richest NBA owner, which is ridiculous. He went Sorry. in and he vetoed his own GM that he hired to try to get Harden on the team. And now he's seeing that repercussion live because once you have those four all-stars, those four Hall of Famers on the court together, who's going to rebound? Who's going to be the glue guy? Who's going to be the person that's doing off-door cuts? Who's going to be the person initiating multiple dribble handoffs? Like, I don't want to go out on a tangent right now, but why is Philly in the first place uh, in, in the Eastern Conference right now? Because of the coaching change with Nick Nurse alongside the obvious counterpart and Harden leaving. But the main issue is that uh, Doc Rivers was very pick-and-roll focused between Harden or Maxi and Embiid. And that's how he ran his offense. Every other player, including Tobias Harris, which I want to get into later as well, was very complacent. Like imagine paying a guy a max contract and then relegating him into a catch and shoot role when you know he has way more to offer, such as I'm going to get into later. He's literally shooting 60% from the field right now and 40% from three. And he's not averaging your regular like 13 15 points a game as a third best player where he's averaging 20 a game on 60 50 splits like that's ridiculous that's 2k numbers and that's why he's worth a max contract why is he flourishing like that because of nick nurse's dribble handoff fast-paced system everyone gets a touch on offense everyone feels involved everyone has more motivation to play better on both sides of the ball and that's what the Clippers are not doing. That's what the Celtics didn't do last year in the playoffs. These teams who have such good star players tend to just literally give the ball to the star player and then go sit on the wing, go sit on the corner, and then watch them dribble. They don't do any off-ball movement. They don't do any uh, screen and rolls. They don't do any dribble handoffs. They don't do any basketball moves. They give them wide open shots. It's a very complacent and stand around offense dictated on your good player getting an isolation bucket, which is proved to be in NBA analytics, a very non-efficient way to score. The best uh, ISO players in the game only get about 1.1 or 1.2 points of possession, which is good. But if you change that into like a very move uh, move centric and oriented offense then you're going to get up to 1.5 1.6 points a possession which is way more efficient and it gives every single player on the team way more motivation to play on both sides of the court they feel more involved they feel like they're part of that team rather than being relegated to someone to pass back the ball to the guy isoling because he picked up his dribble i think that's the main reason the clippers are on a zero five run with harden other than the fact that they're trying to integrate him into the lineup, into the offense and everything, and then take that to the defensive side of the ball, Kawhi's past his defensive prime. He's not the guy he used to be. He's very injury related, so he can't really um, like expense that much energy on that side of the court, especially because he's still technically their go-to number one scorer on the other side of the court. So he can only do so much. So now you're asking people like James Harden, Russell Westbrook, even PG to go out and rebound and do those hustle plays and try to like move off ball when that's simply not what they're doing. If anything, I'll give Russ the benefit of the doubt because he has kind of settled into that role like I covered. However, good luck getting someone like a James Harden to stay in front of like, I don't know, a Tyrese Maxey. Like, good luck having him guard him because he's simply not fast enough. He's a good rebounding guard because he's a little bit heavier and he can jump. 
However, even then, like I remember we were watching a game together and then literally uh, the New York Knicks player that was on the Warriors last season, number zero, the good defender, he literally just jumped out and out-rebounded Harden from the back, which led to him getting the ball back like Steph Curry does on the wing and draining a three on the Clippers' face. So those second-chance opportunities and points that they're simply too lazy to do because they all have that star player mentality will be their downfall unless they change the way they run their offense. And Ty Lu is the best head coach to do that, but he hasn't really done anything so far. He came out after the last game saying that Harden was being too polite. And then when Harden was asked about that, he was saying, okay, like, you're not going to see me do that anymore. You're going to see me be way more aggressive and be me because he is the system, right? So, like, that's an example of how toxic he was even before he got an opportunity to step into the locker room like you alluded to yourself. So, I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but there's just a lot to say about why the Clippers are 0-5 so far with Harden. And I think I did a pretty good job of, like, I, explaining yeah. to our general audience why that is. So, please fill in the blanks where I left them. I mean, you mentioning sort of the offense stagnating, the way you described it is perfect. And I also like your analogy of, the Celtics and like the Eastern conference finals last year where, you know, they really resorted to ISO ball and you had like Jalen Brown and a lot of other guys just kind of standing around watching people brick threes, you know, and the Celtics did shoot like 20% from three and two of their first three losses in the Eastern conference finals last year. Um, but one interesting stat looking at, you know, the last four games is in three of them, the Clippers have scored less than 1.05 points per possession um, and when Harden's on the bench, they outscore their opponents by 24 points, or like 16.8 points per 100 possessions. And while Harden's on the bench, they get outscored by 67 points. Now, of course, part of that is defense. I don't think Harden's ever really been, you know, a stingy defender, whereas, you know, a guy like Russ, you know, you talked about, he has been sort of, you know, hard-nosed, you know, he'll be the vocal leader. That's why he won MVP six years ago with the Thunder, because he could not only score, but he would sort of make those crazy plays to get his team back into it. And yeah, with Harden there, it just kind of throws off the whole rhythm and guys are thrown into different roles. And I, I agree with you that Harden should be coming off the bench and not starting. Um, but yeah, I mean, basically the Clippers, the Clippers are basically suffering. Um, as a result of their coach's decision to overrule the G or their owner's decision to overrule the GM and go get Harden, which I'm sure was like, a, oh, maybe we can uh, fix the guy. And, you know, by adding more star power, we'll overcome our horrible playoff woes. But, you know, so far that hasn't panned out. They're what, three and five now, three and six now, excuse me. And, and yeah, they got to right the ship fast because, you know, the Western Conference is loaded. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very top heavy with teams like Denver and Dallas right now. Yeah. You know, you could find yourself even out of the play in race very, very quickly if you're not careful. Um, yeah, it, it's just one of those things where it kind of boggles the mind why they made the decision. The other problem, you know, Ty Lu is a very good head coach. I think he generally has a very good basketball mind, um, but he's not like, you know, because we were talking about Ime Udoka earlier. He's not the type of guy that instills, like, toughness. Yeah, sort of. Yeah. He's a lot more passive. He's a lot more, like, 
you know, the guys know the what they're doing. Coach. You he's even a saw, coach. He's, a, he's a player's coach. And you saw this in sort of the final years with LeBron on the Cavs. You know, he really let LeBron run sort of the show, which in some ways made sense. But in other ways, you know, I mean, they, they did beat the Celtics in seven in the 2018 Eastern Conference Finals, but, you know, did nothing in the NBA Finals that year. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, we di- I digress. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and one other thing to note, too, is one of those three games where they scored less than 1.05 points per possession was against the one, at the time, one in eight Grizzlies. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, the Grizzlies outside of, you know, Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr., you know, occasionally you might get a, you know, hey, some good place I was just going to say my boy Smart. <laughs> Although Smart's still has the same great and bad habit. Like, yeah. the, the Smart package is really showing itself. He's on the averaging the fifth most steals in the game uh, in the league right now. Now, the thing with Smart is, like, he gets a crazy steal, but then on the next play, like, either takes a boneheaded shot or turns it over in the most boneheaded way imaginable. Um, yeah, I... I you know, not to go too far off on tangent, I do feel bad for Smart. I think he deserves to be in a better situation Literally. than what he's currently with. But anyways, back to the Clippers. I, I, all this to say, I just don't understand the heart and move at all. No. Again, I, I think the owner thought that, you know, having the cloud of like Harden being there would somehow help them. But I mean, Harden's been to the conference finals, what, twice, three times? Like he he's always been a play like he performs his worst in the playoffs. Yeah, like he's sure. not the guy that's gonna get you over the line. No, so he's a regular season player. For you sure. know, I think the Clippers can right the ship if they put Harden on the bench. I'm just not sure they're going to do that. Yeah, you know, and Harden's too much of a diva to allow it to happen. And Ty lose too much of a player's coach. Coach. If he becomes a little bit more assertive, like any Mayodoka, for example, like you mentioned, he might. But as long as you're starting those four with Zubac, I don't really think you're going to get far because nobody's the glue guy. Nobody's doing the dirty work, especially when you literally promised someone at, like a Terrence Mann that he's going to be a starter before the season even started. And then he went on his uh, he had his own injury. So then the Harden uh, trade happened and we all saw the video of Harden walking into the locker room and Terrence Mann giving him that disgusting look of why are you here? You're going to steal my minutes. You're going to steal my starting spot. And he has done that. He's literally done the exact thing that Terrence Mann didn't want him to do. Uh, A good starting lineup would include Terrence Mann in place of either Russ or uh, Harden just so they have that glue guy chasing after it those be, balls like it should be hardened like i i i even was looking at like the minutes from the clippers last game and yeah man was you know he was buried in the bench and i don't think that's i don't think that's the role terrence man should have he's always no. had a big role in those yeah. you know especially in the uh eastern or western conference yeah, finals he team had a couple 60, years ago yeah yeah exactly and like he's 28 he's literally in his prime right now and you're just not utilizing him the way you should be you know like and wasting that, him yeah that's why you're 0 and 5 in your last five and if you don't do anything about it i think you're gonna stay there 
um, you really need to use your personnel the way they're supposed to. If you keep relying on a 38-year-old P.J. Tucker to be your small ball five because Plumlee's injured, I just don't think that's a recipe for success. Your starter, P.J. Tucker? Yeah. He's... P.J. Tucker's on the Sixers, bro. No. Yeah. No, no, no. He's on the Clippers. He he was part We're of the Harden. He was he's part of the Harden package. You know, oh my god, I I totally forgot he, <laughs> he was part of the Harden package. Oh, I I was like I thought I remember PJ Tucker on the Sixers like a week ago. He was, he was, but he was part of the Harden package, and now he's oh like gosh. their second starting center behind Zubac because Plumlee fell. Ah, uh, PJ Tucker. So he'll make the craziest plays lineup. and he'll be like one for one from the field for the game. Exactly. The youngest starter on that entire lineup is PG at 32. Or sorry, Kawhi. PG's 33. Kawhi is 32. He's the youngest. And P, uh, PJ Tucker, well, they're not starting him. Zubach is the youngest starter. But like when they have PJ Tucker on the court with those four all-stars, the average age is like 35, 36. Like you're not gonna win games like that, especially with people who have the mentality that they're star players and they don't want to like sacrifice for the greater team. They don't want to do the dirty work, the hustle plays, all that. You're just not gonna win many games. And I feel like we've given them too much time because it's just like a blockbuster trade. They're literally like the Nets and the Heat in 2012, the Nets in 2020 reincarnated, just like that super team big three, but in this case, big four mentality so it's just like very intriguing to like witness and see all those players on one team sharing the court together at the same time especially but it's a recipe for disaster Steve Ballmer overruled his own hired leadership team to get that done and it's not paying dividends for him hopefully it does hopefully Ty Lue steps in and he does make some changes so we see the true potential that they're capable of doing However, at this point, just like the Lakers, to a certain extent, they're just not in good terms. So, and honestly, just like the Warriors, like the Warriors have lost their last three. Um, we can kind of jump into talking about them a little bit. It's kind of the main stat that stands out to me from a Warriors perspective is the fact that no player, not no starter, no player on the entire roster has scored over 20 points since the game, since the season has started. And that's ridiculous. Like you have Clay Thompson, you have uh Chris Paul, you have And uh, that excludes Curry, right? Because Curry's definitely put up. Yeah, no, he's the only player that has oh, only at yeah. other warriors besides Curry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No other player on the entire help. roster. That's you why know, I put that's why I put in all caps, get Curry some help, bruh. That's what I'm saying. Like, where's Thompson? Where's Kaminga? Where's Wiggins? Where's Green? Where's Sarich? Sarich was the only player that had 20. Yeah, he had 20, but no other player had over 20. And that's ridiculous. Like, you have Curry balling out of his mind at 35 years old, and then Clay Thompson shooting, like, 30% from the field, 35% from three. Like, what are you doing, man? You, you This is a contract year for you, and you're shooting like ridiculous splits from the field you're like your average game is like five for 14 from the field at this point and they're all wide open shots like catch and shoots your bread and butter like I think he's gonna come back to earth and start being himself again just like Kyrie was for example like Kyrie started this season shooting like 17 percent from three and then he had two games where he was literally like seven for 10 and six for nine and now his percentage is like over 40 again 
So I think he's going to come back to being himself. But it's just like disappointing to see Curry being surrounded by such good players who aren't living up to like the expectations that they should be living up to. Because like even a player like Andrew Wiggins, like he's so gifted. He's still in his prime. He's in his late 20s. Like you can't contribute by giving 20 points a game when literally all of the attention every day is geared towards the best player on the team. Like, you're, only, you're never going to get double teamed. You're never going to get see more defensive attention because all of it's at the player that's running over nine miles a game, you know? And then you just can't muster over 20 points a game with, like, 15, 16 shots that you're getting every game. Like, that's more than ample opportunity to score over 20 and no player has done that in the entire season so far and we're not, not even that much of a smaller sample size at this point we're at 10 games in that's around that's about an eighth of the entire season so it's like not that like short of a sample size anymore you have to have at least one game where you go over 20 points if you're Andrew Wiggins or Clay Thompson yeah that's absolutely crazy especially Wiggins like Wiggins and Kuminga, like I really expected more from both of them. Wiggins, you know, infamously shut down, you know, the Celtics, especially Jason Tatum during the 2022 NBA finals. Well, his and rebounding too. He did a really good job. Good rebounding, you know, was making the buckets he needed to, and, you know, was defending quite well. And the Warriors are defending fine, but they're just not scoring the way they should. But yeah. So what do you think? Like no other player on the entire Warriors squad who are literally a current dynasty has started the season with 10 games and scoring over 20 with the exception of Dario Saric, which isn't really an exception because we're talking about over 20 points and he only had 20 on the dot. And that's Dario Saric. Like that's a dude who's been bounced from Philly to Phoenix who sat out during the Phoenix's finals run because he was injured, and now he finds himself on the Warriors. So he's kind of getting to that point where he's becoming an NBA journeyman, and he's the guy who scored 20 points, as opposed to people like Andrew Wiggins, Klay Thompson, even Chris Paul. I think he has a 20-point game in him left with the amount of, like, like the every team is playing him to pass. So when he gets to that patented, like, mid-range elbow jumper of his, if he makes 10 of those a game, that's 20 points. And he's going to get fouled on a few. So that's another a couple of free throws. And we know that Chris Paul is like one of the best free throw shooters in the entire world. So like I know he's like trying to defer way more now because he is on a team with Stephen Curry. But given the fact that you're leading the bench unit and you're shooting horribly from three, you'd think that he'd resort more to his patented elbow jumper, at least like, I don't know, 10, 12 times a game, try to get like a little bit up to that 20 point mark, not even past it. But not even Clay Thompson is getting like 16, 17 shots a game, with most of them being threes, has even touched the 20 point mark, which is ludicrous. Yeah, I think, well, I think there are also a couple other issues or big issues popping up for the Warriors just beyond the shooting. Their side? Um, I mean, for example, in you know, they're horrible in transition this year. They went from being one of the best transition teams, both in terms of the number of transition possessions they got and like points per, per transition possession. Mm. Uh, this year, they ranked dead last in the num- percentage of their possessions are in transition at a league low 12.5%. And they went from having 1.12% points per transition possession last year to the second worst 0.94 points per transition possession so they're not getting those done 
which, you know, was a huge source of what got them, you know, points last year, other than just, you know, the pure shooting, you know, the, the catch and shoot threes from guys like clay. Um, but then they're also just playing sloppy basketball, like in their two losses to Cleveland, one of the games, they had over 20 turnovers and in the two games combined, they had 57 fouls resulting in 72 free throws for the Cavs. So they're just, it's just sloppy basketball, you know, like it's very, I would say very uncharacteristic of the Warriors, especially with how good of a coach Steve Kerr is. And you still have, you know, the core of the Splash Brothers together, you know, plus guys like Wiggins who are part of that team that won the chip a couple years ago, you know, and plus you have guys like Sarich, like Kuminga, you know, who can, who can really contribute, but you know, when, when you shoot yourself in the foot like that, I mean, the result is a three game losing streak to, you know, again, two of those losses are to a Cavs team Unreal. that was, you know, has been really struggling lately. Honestly, we had the Cavs in third place in the East when we recorded last, and they haven't really lived up to that. Even though they've been playing well, I just think Garland's not really been playing like himself. He's been a little too passive. But... I think they've been they've been a bit worse on both sides of all than I expected. I mean, usually their defense really carries them, but they're not even in the top 10 defensively right now. Yeah, Like, they're just not super consistent, and, you know, they've lost a couple games to not so great teams too so i you know won't spend too much time on the calves yeah. um it's kind of weird though when you say that that makes me think of my raptors because we're literally beating good teams and we're losing to bad teams so except for today when you guys made the 23 point comeback successfully albeit <laughs> against a wizards team you guys shouldn't have even been that's the fourth biggest comeback in franchise history after the one in 2019 spearheaded by the Groat, Kyle Lowry against the Mavs. My friend was there for that game, and he says he has never seen a game with such, like, livelihood atmospheres. Every time was it, uh, it was, was at Scotiabank? Yeah, every time Kyle Lowry touched the ball, everyone would start yelling, like, immediately because he spearheaded that comeback, man. But yeah, like, yeah, what a magical year for you Raptors fans. We're literally beating teams like the Mavericks, the Bucks, and then we're losing to like the Trailblazers. Like, what? How is that possible? Like, I think the only good team you haven't beaten are my Celtics. And the but that was also and the Sixers. But those are also the two hottest teams in the E. Well, you can say debatably the hottest teams. Um, but two teams in the East that are hot. The Philadelphia 76ers and living up to their name, the Miami Heat. Yeah. Um, so maybe if we want to dig into the, the Sixers. So the Sixers lost their first game of the season. They never looked back. Who, and they haven't looked back since then. Uh, since then, Embiid has put up a 48-point game. And more recently, Tyrese Maxey put up a 50-burger. Mm-hmm. Um and as we talked about, him and uh, Tobias Harris are really starting to see their usage go up more, and I, I think they're settling in more to the roles that they should have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the way I described Maxi to you was kind of, I originally said dark horse, but I meant X-Factor. Like, he's, you know, Embiid's always going to kind of be the leader of that team, of you know, where their performance really depends on how he does. But, you know, they they need Maxi to, like, yeah, really step up. I think uh, Maxi had what was it like 
30 some odd points against my Celtics where they won by three uh, last week. Um, he, he's a huge difference maker. Um, you know, but maybe if, if you want to talk a bit more about uh, the third man. Uh, yeah, we so basically earlier. like this whole thing I've noticed watching the league in the first couple of weeks is this third man role, like that third man who's technically still could be a max player for any other team, but has accepted a lesser role on a winning team because he wants to be part of that winning story franchise etc and those two people are tobias harris and tim hardaway jr for the mavericks so honestly tobias harris on the clippers before he got traded to philly he was their go-to guy he was their main player he was the guy that's always getting them buckets and how does tobias harris flourish he flourishes when he gets touches, when he sees the ball, and when he's more involved on the offensive side of the ball. That way, he gets to his bread and butter patented moves that made him the first option type of caliber player he could be on the Clippers, on, on the other teams he was before then. But then, when he got traded to Philly and they got Harden, he was relegated to a spot-up shooter because Harden is such a ball-dominant guard. And obviously, Harden is a better player than Tobias. So Tobias took a backseat for Harden. And his numbers didn't go down by much, but he wasn't being used the best possible way he could. And now, in Nick Nurse's system, which we touched on earlier this episode, where everyone's seeing the ball a lot more. And keep in mind, this is with Embiid still probably having the highest usage rate in the entire league at 38%. Like, 40% of the time, when Embiid's on the floor, he has the ball, and Harris is still flourishing in um, Nurse's system because of how many touches he gets. Be it may, it's like him touching the ball and passing it right back, but he's still getting it, and he's still being allowed to do the shots and the bread and butter moves that he thrives on, which includes like backing people down and then taking a fadeaway midi, for example, or just like dribbling into a pull-up uh, jumper or... Uh, running past you to get an open layup rather than just always shooting threes so doing that has given him such a better offensive output he averages 20 points a game six rebounds a game and he's shooting 57 percent from the field and 36 percent from three as of now but eight games into the season those numbers were 60 and 50 percent so obviously he's come back down to earth because he had a bad shooting game last game. But if you take away last game, he was literally shooting about 50% from three, which is just ridiculous. That tells you how having um, supporting players on a roster is better than having stars, just like the Clippers, for example. And then going to the math side of the equation, Tim Hardaway Jr., he actually took it as far as accepting a bench role to come off the bench even though he is definitely not a bench player in my opinion because okay. of grant williams and the recent um rookie they drafted in Derek lively so that way kid or jason kid he basically did this thing where he's trying out different lineups to complement kyrie and lucas strengths the most and we've seen Luca and Kyrie resort to a lot more of like pull up threes than they did in the past. And just having their teammates a lot more involved in more possessions 
And that's a perfect example of how Dwight Powell is relegated to a bench role and Derek Lively, who's a 7-1 foot center, who's a rookie, has found a lot of early chemistry with Luka Doncic because he plays the way Luka wants him to. He sets the picks, he rolls, he's more dominant, he's more decisive when it comes to scoring. Whereas uh, a center like Dwight Powell was a little bit more reluctant. He wasn't as good with his touches and he was second guessing every move he did a little bit more. And now I think Dwight Powell has benefited from coming off the bench because he's going against less sturdy competition and he's going against other bench squads. And he himself is a good enough starter on like the Houston Rockets, for example, which isn't really a good example because they're six and zero right now in their last six. But on a less good team, he would be a starting caliber center. And now he's finding himself flourishing even more because of that role, which brings me back to the original point I wanted to make in Tim Hardaway Jr. He is just like Tobias Harris. He's averaging about the 18, 19 points a game mark, and he's shooting about 42% from the field, 38% from three. So those numbers were also a little bit better, like about two, three games ago, but here coming back slowly down to earth. But that's to say that how when you have one or two really good players on your team, And then you have other star caliber players who aren't stars in the NBA because they have to settle down to roles that they accept and cherish and want to buy into to provide for the winning team's mentality. That is the recipe for success in today's NBA. It's simply not having a super team anymore because we're the last super team that won was Miami. Like there literally hasn't been any super teams after Miami that won. Because every team, or sorry, uh, the last super team that won was the KD, Steph, and uh, Clay Warriors in 2017. After them, there hasn't really been a super team. Because the Raptors took it, then the Lakers, then the Bucks, then et cetera, and et cetera. And there hasn't been any team with three plus all-star players on the squad at the same time. So when you look at the recent trend in today's NBA, and you look at the top seeds in the West and the East in Philly, the Mavs, uh, Boston, uh, Denver, they have one to two very good star players and other complementary players who complement their skill sets. That's the way and blueprint that you need to have in the NBA today to succeed. And that's how you saw players just like Tobias Harris, for example, elevate his game from being relegated to a spot-up shooter because you arguably had three all-stars with Tyrese Maxey being a budding all-star at the time last season whereas Tobias Harris had to take a backseat to all three of them. And now he's being given that opportunity to thrive. And he's on a contract here as well. So he's trying to get himself paid. And he's really showing everyone how good of a player he actually is, just like Tim Hardaway is. Tim Hardaway is like the nicest NBA player outside of the court. So he's going to buy into that role because he knows he's playing with two generational talents in Kyrie and Luka. And he's still thriving because he knows if he works on the skill set that they need him to work on that he's gonna benefit the team so much and provide so much positivity to the way they play and add to that team chemistry to take them over the hump which is why both teams have gone out to an 8-1 and a two start in both conferences now i totally agree and i got credit jason kidd too because he's really uh you know, he's really built around the strengths of that team, you know, hence why they, they have the second best offense in the league right now, um, even though their defense tends to be their weak point, but they're really, you know, they're, they're doing a good job, like spraying the ball around and you have self, like 
you know, to, I, I, I like the point you made about Tim Hardaway being one of the nicest guys in the league. Cause I, I also find him to be one of the most likable guys in the league, yeah. but like him saying like, you know, he swallows his pride and says, you know, I may, there may not be five guys on this team better than me, but I'm still going to take that bench roll. I'm still going to put up those 18 to 19 points per game. And and the funny yeah, part is, him coming off the bench isn't really him being a bench player because he's averaging more minutes than uh, Grant Williams, who's starting. Kid just wants to start Grant Williams because he knows he's that pesky defender that he wants guarding the best player on the other team's starting lineup. But then as soon as he wants more firepower, Tim Hardaway is off the bench like that. And Tim Hardaway knows that he's a better offensive player than Grant Williams. But he also knows that Grant Williams has that dog in him to defend the other best players opposing a star. That's why he got relegated to the bench. It's not really much of a relegation as it is a delegation for him to win for the team's success. It's it's uh strategy as as George W. Bush once said. But um, I mean it's the kind of the same thing for the Sixers. Is like uh you know Nick Nurse, who I think is a much better coach than Doc Rivers. Yeah. Yeah. You usually, usually Philly has a pretty good offense, but their defense is definitely, you know, their stronger point. But right now, even though their defense is playing really well and about on par with how they usually are, it's actually their offense that's playing better. And I think it's because, you know, as you mentioned, like uh, even in the game against the Celtics last week, the, the Sixers could not shoot the three ball. They were doing just as bad as the Celtics were, but they were moving the ball around, you know, guys were who didn't have the ball. Like there was the off ball movement that you talked about, you know, it wasn't just, you know, ISO ball. It wasn't, you know, just MB trying to like, you know, brute force their way to a win. Like it was really team ball. And, you know, I, I think that's a good recipe for success for the, for the Sixers and for the Mavericks. It's, it's kind of the same thing. You, you know, that Kyrie and Luca are two very ball dominant guards you know, who like to get their buckets and it's sort of all about like, you know, because there are some nights where they're not going to be, you know, on their game. You know, Luca's put up like 45, 50 points in a game some nights. Other nights he puts up 15 points and really struggles to shoot. So, you know, one thing that I think Tim guys like Tim Hardaway do really well is they also kind of evolve their role based on the opponent, based on, like they're very good situational basketball players too i feel like and like you said like you said how i you like my point about him being the nicest guy in the league this is like not basketball related well it kind of is but it's not like actual basketball related he actually gave up uh his jersey number for Kyrie this season so like he went That's as right as, yeah he literally went from number 11 to number 10 to give Kyrie's number 11 to him so like that just shows you about how much of the word sacrifice actually he's willing to give. He literally gave up his number for Kyrie on top of the fact that he gave up his starting role for Grant Williams' defense. And you can see the dividends paying because they're the second team in the entire Western Conference followed by defending champions. And they even have the exact same record. So you can argue that they're both in first place as of right now. And the Mavs don't even have a good defensive identity yet. So imagine when they keep improving, when Grant Williams' chemistry with the team gets better. And we also have to highlight uh, how Derek Jones Jr. has been playing for them because he has not been known to be a good three-point shooter. 
and he is literally shooting 36 or 37 36.7% from 3 this season which is a huge upgrade based off of when he was in Miami and basically playing the center position for them because he's not a shooter he's deemed as a non-threat from the perimeter and now under um Jason Kidd's system you can see his outside shot just being unleashed with how um the Mavericks basically play a five out def- or offensive lineup and identity when their centers aren't on the court and they choose to go small and honestly it's just paying a lot of dividends uh the Mavericks are one of my favorite teams to watch because Luka and Kyrie are probably my two favorite players in the league right now so honestly just seeing them on the same team and winning and not passing up wide open shots and not even getting a shot off to end the game like they did last season is really nice to actually and then, like, when they decided to tank to get their uh, number 10 pick, and that ended up materializing into Derek Lively, who literally took over the starting center position from Dwight Powell. So they're both doing really well, and I hope that keeps on becoming the fact because it's super fun to watch these two teams go at it. And honestly, it's about time that Philly gets some regular and postseason success to take it away from your fellow Celtics. Yeah. We'll, we'll see about that when the time comes. But, uh, you know, I think the East is going to be a very interesting race this year. And obviously we could spend time talking about my Celtics, but I think there are other interesting teams to talk about. I mean, one that's kind of interesting because they're following similar patterns as previous years are the Miami Heat. Um, so the Heat started the season one and four. Um, they look ESPN was awful. so fast to so fast to post about them being the last seed in the Eastern Conference at that point, and every single comment all across social media platforms were like, "They'll be fine." A week later, and they're in the fourth spot. And that that's kind of the thing with Miami, and and it was to be fair, like if you're a Heat fan, I would have been concerned after those first five games because they were one and four. Their only win was a one point win against the lowly Pistons who are now on a seven game losing streak and oh God. doing exactly what we thought the Pistons would do. Yeah. But you know, what's Miami's identity every single year defense. They have shot back into the top 10 defensively. Um, You know, they're still struggling to shoot the ball a little bit. I think it was like last game. I think like Duncan Robinson against what was it? The Hawks like started like one for 10 from the field or something, but he ended up making some critical buckets at the end. And uh, even against the Celtics earlier in the season, Miami shot like 45% from three. Mm, Um, So they definitely have some offensive potential. And, you know, even this year, despite losing guys like Gabe Vincent, they're still a very deep team in terms Mm -hmm. of guys that can contribute. I mean, Gabe hasn't um, really been playing well for the Lakers. So he's I don't not think been playing well for the Lakers. I heard about losing him, especially with him getting the MLE exception. So he's getting paid a lot more than Miami was willing to give him, and he's not living up to it so far. So I think they're good on that front. They literally are. Um, they're relying on the rookie they drafted a lot. Um, I think his name is uh, uh, Jaquez, Jaime Jaquez. Yes, playing a lot on him, and he is playing really well for them. He's a bit of an older rookie. He was drafted at 22 years old, but he's still playing really well for them. He's averaging eight points a game. He's shooting about 48% from the field. 
and he has really timely buckets and he has a lot of steals he's averaging about 1.3 steals per game so they just like they have been doing every single season they just find diamonds on the rough and players who are willing to play with that Miami Heat culture just like you alluded to and yeah I think they'll be fine they'll probably make another deep playoff push I don't think they're gonna make it out of the east this season because the two juggernauts in the east are simply too good but yeah, but yeah, you, can what, never, what, you can never say no to Miami. But, but there are also two key stats, in my opinion, that the Heat ranked in the top three. And for, de- I, I would say for defense, you can kind of call it whatever you want. It's opponent free throw rate. So they play very clean defense mm. and opponent t- turnover percentage. So basically, you know, that that's kind of what's doomed the Celtics the past two years. I mean, of course, they won one of the Eastern Conference finals, but Miami creates a lot of turnovers, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they really, and I think in this season, like they've played 10 games decided by single digits and won, you know, all six of their wins, I think have been by single digits. So Miami's really good at, you know, game competing in uncomfortable situations. And yeah. I think that ability to compete and like, you know, come out on top, even when the situation is, you know, there's a lot of pressure or however you want to describe it, I think is one of Miami's biggest strengths. And mm-hmm. it's what makes them a threat year in and year out. I mean, even last year when they were the eighth seed. Um, so I, I think, I think Miami's starting to gel too. So they'll be, you know, they'll also be a really tough team to compete with the rest of the season. For sure. I mean, sure. I, never as a Celtics fan, I look forward to the games we play against them, but I also know I'm going to be like, yeah, blood pressure through the roof for 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, three three hours if you include commercial breaks, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I think the Heat are are also going to, you know, again on a five-game win streak in close games, but but that's kind of their identity, the toughness. So I I, I think the Heat will give the Celtics and Sixers, you know, a good number of problems if they can keep it up and you know, they're also really well coached. Yeah. You know, Spolster is one, probably like a top three coach in the best, league yeah. at the very least. Mm-hmm. Easily. So. Isn't it weird that we're literally not even, we're probably an hour into the episode and we haven't touched on the biggest blockbuster trade that was this summer and Damian Lillard joining the milwaukee books because it has been the least to say very disappointing yeah i mean that first game there was that that first game dame had 39 points we're all you know they barely won the game and everyone was like oh my god like this is what we brought dame here for you know and then everything fell off the map because so like this is the thing everyone all the analysts all the basketball geeks they were all excited about the potential pick and roll with Giannis and Damian Lillard because Damian Lillard is obviously a very strong outside shooter Giannis is obviously a very dominant inside presence however the fact of the matter is that Giannis was never the player to set a lot of screens for other players that is simply not the way he plays. If you go back and look at their title run, he did not set that many screens for Jan, er, for Chris Middleton. He was playing off of Chris Middleton rather than setting him screens. And you found someone like a Brooke Lopez, for example, setting a lot more screens 
for the pick and roll or the pick and pop with Chris Middleton, Andrew Holiday. So Giannis has never been the kind of player to thrive or be good at setting screens simply because he doesn't have the reps under him. And you can see that really obviously materializing when he tries to do that for Dame. Dame is not comfortable with the screens he's being set. That's why his three-point percentage isn't really high. He's not getting the looks he's used to getting on the Portland Trailblazers when the entire offense was ran around him. And therefore, he's struggling a lot. So he's finding himself having to drive a lot more, which is giving him a very high number of free throws attempted. And he's actually knocking those out of the park. I think he's like top five in the entire league in free throws made percentage-wise. So he's thriving based on that front because we know he still has that first burst still in him, even though he's almost 34 years old. He just turned 33. So he's going into his 34th year. However, he still has that explosive first step just like Russ does at 35 years old because these guards were built very very um like light on their first step and the way they move they're very shifty with the ball and they're not that heavy they're very lightweight so they can just feather around opponents defenses and with their handles they can just keep changing directions and switch speeds at such a very efficient rate that they keep their opponents guessing all the time so that's how he's been able to get his 22 points per game. He's still been trying to get his like feet under him. However, I think the chemistry between him and Giannis is simply not there. It's a negative at this point. And we can say it's because the trade was made so late. They haven't had a training camp together. They still don't know how to play well together. However, I think that they're going to need more than one season. And this is my hot take. I don't think they're going to make it out of the East in in this season because I think they need more than 82 games worth because we obviously know they're not going to play the full 82 games, especially together. So Dame's already had a couple of injury concerns and it's an eighth into the season. So I don't think they're going to make it out of the East. I think they're the third or fourth best team in the Eastern Conference when everyone thought they were the top two. I think the top two are very obvious right now. Boston was always correct. However, Philly has emerged with Tyrese Maxey being an all-star player this season. Like we covered Tobias Harris, the Kelly Oubre injury, may we wish him a speed recovery, might hinder yeah, that's a little bit. But I don't know, people like De'Anthony Melton might step up. You never know who's going to step up for Philly. So I would still not count them out of that one-two spot. However, Milwaukee, their defense is horrible, especially on the perimeter. I don't know why you would make some guy like Beasley your starting two guard when he's known not to be a good defender with people like Giannis and um, um, their big, what's their big name? Lopez. Lopez highlighting that front court they still haven't even been that good on the defensive end even on the front court side of things so I think they have a lot of things to work on we thought it would be a lot easier and a lot more like just straightforward for them to mesh together because of their respective skill sets but I think the fact that Giannis is just not used to being a screen setter and Dame's not used to not having good screen set for him for him to get his looks I think they're going to need more time to gel. I 100% agree. And there's one stat that proves your point almost to a T. Mm. The Bucks, believe it or not, have scored 12 and a half fewer points per 100 possessions with Dame on the floor than they have without him. Wow. So they've scored 107 points per 100 possessions 
with him on the floor, 119.5 points per 100 without him on the floor. You know, they're 25th ranked defense in terms of rating and bottom third in the league in terms of net rating. So they're they're definitely really struggling. And to be fair, I did say at the start of the season, I thought losing Drew Holiday, you know, would hurt the Bucks D, both their perimeter D and just kind of as a whole. Because once you lose Drew Holiday, literally guarding all star centers at this point. So he was guarding Embiid like half of the game when you guys played them. And like, I think the loss in that regard was very underestimated. You know, you lost your your staple of the defense, really allowed Giannis to cover the in, you know, cover the paint more. And of course, once the perimeter D go, you know, goes to the dogs, of course the interior you know defense in the paint, interior defense is gonna see the same thing. Um, you know, the the Bucks could get it together. They'll definitely be a playoff team just because of the star power that they have, but. I mean, with that defense, with with that defense, they're gonna struggle against you know, top teams like you know Philly, like Boston, you know my or tough teams like Miami, you know there are other teams that that could, you know, make things interesting. You know, we might not get to contenders versus pretenders, but might be an interesting episode to do maybe a quarter of the way into the season. you know, looking at teams like the Pacers who have like the best offense in the league right now, but you know, one of the worst defenses, you know, they can't guard to save their lives. Um, they they could maybe even struggle against them, you know, teams that score in high volumes. Um we it, thought it'll they be, could be one of those teams, right? We thought they'd be like top two, top three in offensive rating, but maybe like an average team, like maybe a 15 or a 16th spot in defense. We didn't anticipate them being very low offensively and extremely low defensively. So that's yeah, they're not I even they're not even top eyebrow. 10 offensively right now, just exactly. in terms of offensive exactly. rating. I think Damian Lillard is going to come to being himself just like Kyrie was when he's shooting 28. Now he's shooting over 40%. Like Damian's going to end up getting his reps in, his stats, his points. But I just think they need more than one season's worth of games for him to actually play well off of Giannis. Just like Kyrie, his involvement and inclusion into the Dallas Mavericks last season was everything but smooth. And we're literally seeing it right now in front of us with Harden and the Clippers. You just need a lot of time to incorporate a star player into a star-riddled offense because it's simply just not as easy as plug-and-play. For example, if Alex Caruso is traded from the Bulls to, um, which team did I want to say he was going to be traded to? To Philly. Then he would be the definition of a plug-and-play player because he would abide by his role, he would be a perfect fit, and he would improve their defense, and he would make them a better team overnight. However, if you trade for Zach Levine, not Alex Caruso, then you're going to get worse before you get better, and that's exactly what we're seeing with Damon Harden right now. Yeah, and I think the other thing for the for Milwaukee, almost lost, lost my train of thought there, um, you know, along with Dame's injury concerns, you know, they're not getting a lot of help. Like Chris Milton hasn't returned to form. He's still on a minute restriction. I think he's playing like 20 minutes per game or something. So it's just like if Dame's hurt or not playing like himself, you know, and the offense is discombobulated. Like, what do they have? Like, they don't have like a fallback plan. 
Um, and of course, since their defense is struggling so badly, you know, they can't rely on that to keep them in games. I mean, they had their chances against the Pacers last week. And even though Giannis put up 54 points, you know, which is, which is about as good as you're going to get from him, they, they still lost that game. So, you know, I think Dame was out for that game to be fair, but still it's like, if you can't win with that, like, like what can you win with? So yeah, you know, I, mean, I, I think three I think fifty the... pieces and Giannis's was the only one on a loss. Or did Zach Levine also lose when he put up fifty one? Um, which game was that in again? I don't remember, but I know Maxi won today. Yeah, Ma- Maxi and the Sixers won. I think the Bulls might have won that game. They're four and six, and. When he put up 50, I think it was against like the Hornets or something. Maybe against the Pistons. I mean, if that's the case, then they probably did win. The yeah, game. it was against the Pistons. And, and they, they lost. They <laughs> oh my gosh, they lost to the really? Pistons. That's so crazy. Messi was the only 50 point game, which ended up in a W. So that's so crazy. Like, okay, we got we got our lesson, right? Don't have one player score 50 because you're gonna lose two out of three times. Oh my gosh. I I mean, as we've been, that that's kind of the running theme of this episode is balanced teams do well. The really? Sixers like are balanced. The Celtics are balanced. The Nuggets anymore, are really right? well balanced. The this Mavericks, even though their defense is a weak point, like they're really well balanced offensively in terms and of even Boston is more of a balanced team with like arguably three or four all-stars, you know, because you have Porzingis who's not trying to get 25 points a game. And they accept the fact that it's Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Porzingis, Holiday, and then White, and then Horford. And they're all buying into that with joy rather than the Clippers team, which is like, oh, like, here you go. You do you. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, here, pass it. No. And then Harden's like, oh, I'm going to pass up a wide open corner shot to dribble to the side to get blocked. Like, what? When I saw that, I was like, okay, like. You're literally just not used to like shooting catch and shoots because you're such a ball dominant player. He had to do something with the ball before shooting it, and he literally got blocked. Like he waited for McCall or yeah, it's McCall Bridges. They were playing the nuts. PG was dribbling yeah. on the left wing, and McCall Bridges was like trying to help off of PG. So PG passed the ball to Harden. He was wide open in the corner. He was literally like licking his finger to like taste the air of how open he was. He dribbled to the right, waited for Mikal to come back and swat his shot rather than just shooting a wide open catch and shoot. Why would you wait for Mikhail Bridges, who's one of the the best defenders in the league, to come to you? That's so stupid. Like, that's literally hard. Right there. Like, like you have people like the Boston Celtics, the Denver Nuggets, the Philly 76ers, who have ball dominant guards who are very multifaceted. And then you have the six or the Clippers who just want to dribble 15 times before they take a shot and don't want to move off the ball. No wonder you're 0 5. Well, well, from Shaq to a fool, dribble, 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 <laughs> dribble, 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 dribble. I, I, I'm. You remember Charles Barkley was like to Giannis, hey, you don't want your dribbler? And he's like, oh, I want someone that's going to pass the ball. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. And on that note, we can end uh, Season 3, Episode 2 of Shoot Your Shot.
with the overarching theme of get good balanced players, not four all-stars on one team. And to finish it off, go Celtics, go Raptors, go Lakers. <laughs> <laughs>